You are to have a balance between the physical and the spiritual. And if you're just so earthly minded and you don't keep your focus on the things above, you'll just become consumed with the material and the here and now and all your silly little hobbies to the exclusion of making an impact for Jesus Christ. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a study of the book of Revelation, and today in a message entitled, The Vision of Patmos, Pastor Carl moves to verses 9 through 18 of chapter 1 and gives us some insight into where the Apostle John had been banished, as well as introducing us to the seven churches of Asia that will be more fully covered in chapters 2 and 3. I want to invite you this morning to take God's Word and turn to the book of Revelation. If you're new to the Bible, it is the last book in the Bible. Most folks know at least where that book is. Some of your Bibles uh, have across the top the Apocalypse, and that's a good title. It comes right from the text itself from the first verse. Apocalypsis, we just transliterate it. We take the sound of those words and bring it right into English, and it means the unveiling. This is not the revelation of John the Divine. This is not the revelation of John as a few King James translations render it. As most King James publishers put it, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not John's revelation. This is Jesus' revelation given to him from the Father, disseminated through an angel to the Apostle John, and we are reading it today as the seven churches did in the first century. And so we are looking at the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And there's an unveiling here, a disclosure, that we could not otherwise know were it not for this book. And I love the book of Revelation. And may I tell you, Satan hates the book of Revelation. In fact, I am convinced there are two books that Satan hates more than any other. One is the book of Genesis. The other is the Revelation. And he hates Genesis because his doom is pronounced. And he hates Revelation because it is carried out. In fact, when you contrast the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible, you discover that God supernaturally constructed His Word, and the book of Revelation is like a golden clasp that holds the whole thing together. For instance, in the book of Genesis, you have the creation of the heaven and the earth. In the book of the Revelation, we will see a new creation of a new heaven and a new earth, and God won't take six days to do it. He'll do it in an instance of time. In Genesis, you find the first Adam reigning on the earth. In the Revelation, you find the last Adam reigning in glory. In the book of Genesis, God creates the night and the sea. In the book of Revelation, God eliminates the night, and there are no more seas. In the Genesis, you find Adam being presented a bride. In the Revelation, God gives a bride to his son, the church. In Genesis, you have the tree of life that God wanted Adam to participate from. In the Revelation, we will see again the tree of life that we will participate in. In the book of Genesis, you see sin entering into the world, and with that, sin comes a curse and death. When we come to the Revelation, God says there's no more curse and no more death. In Genesis, Satan appears for the first time. But in the Revelation, he will appear for the last time when God will forever contend, assign him to the lake of fire. 
So here we are, Revelation chapter 1. We want to pick up in verse 9 where we left off. Follow along with you as we read the Word of God. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash." His head and his hair were like white wool, were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. If you're using your note-taking outline there in your bulletin, you can see that I've organized my thoughts around three simple themes. Beginning in verses 9 through 11, we want to examine what the apostle John heard. What John heard. Now remember, God gave us a divine outline for the book of Revelation. It's found in the first chapter, the 19th verse. He tells John to write the things that he had seen. That's chapter 1, and we're going to study this marvelous, wonderful vision of Jesus and his glorified body. Then he tells him to write things about the present, the things that are, and he's going to do that in chapters 2 and 3 when he looks at seven churches. And then he tells them in Revelation 1.19 to write the things that will be, that will take place after these things. And that's Revelation 4 all the way through the end of the book. Now we read here in verse 9, I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the king, in kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, as John describes what he experiences, we get a glimpse of what he is like. God gives us a snapshot into this apostle's humility. Notice he describes himself, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. He's basically saying, I am persevering with you in Jesus. And there's not one braggadocious bone in his entire body. He doesn't say, I, John, the author of the gospel of John, You know, that great gospel that tells all about our Lord's life and ministry. I, John, the one who wrote three New Testament letters. I, John, one of three that were closest to the Lord Jesus. I, John, who sat next to him in the upper room. I, John, you know, the only disciple to appear at the cross. I, John, the the one to whom Jesus assigned his mother. He doesn't say, listen up, I'm John, the one Jesus called the beloved apostle. No, none of that. He says, I, John your brother and fellow partaker in the struggles of life. He doesn't call himself Father John, as some refer to him, but Brother John. We saw last time that God has made us to be a kingdom of priests, that each of us in the priesthood of the believer have direct access to God, that while God has leaders in his church, you don't have to go through some clergyman to come to the living God. 
You are brothers with this great apostle. And I've noticed over the years that when people are captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ, people who are anticipating his return, they are not consumed with self. They are concerned with who he is and what he has done. And so that overshadows everything he writes. Your brother and fellow partaker, notice, in the tribulation, some of your translations say sufferings, but the King James and New American Standard, I think, best capture it with this word tribulation. It's the Greek word thalipsis, and it refers not to what we generally call, you know, trials and tribulations, you know, our aches and our pains, our fears, our frustrations, our heartaches, our many disappointments. No, it's actually a technical word in the New Testament. It's a word that literally means pressure. And it is used to describe the pressure of an ungodly world upon God's people. Now, all tribulations, in one sense, are a kind of trial, but not all trials are tribulations. A tribulation is the pressure of an ungodly world. And so, making it a trial is legitimate because it falls under that umbrella. And so, John, James can say, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. But understand, this is not some difficulty you're facing this week. When he speaks of tribulation, he's speaking of severe or mild persecution, however it may express itself. Now, it seems rather awful that this beloved disciple, this great apostle, who loved and followed Jesus with all his heart, would find himself on an island in such trouble. You would think that if you're saved, as many TV personalities try to tell you that if you just think better, you'll live better. But my friend, unless you're going to hell, this is not your best life now. The Bible is clear. It is out there in the future. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Thalipsis, same word, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So it's a technical term that refers to the suffering that comes from a godless world. Jesus said this in Mark 13, for those days will be a time of Thalipsis, tribulation. He's speaking of the tribulation, the persecution, even beheading, as we'll see in the Revelation, that will come upon tribulation saints, people who are alive, who come to faith during the tribulation. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Now, one of Satan's goals for the Antichrist in the Revelation is to destroy Israel and to slander and mock God's name and worth. And we will see that unless Jesus had not intervened, he would have wiped out virtually everyone. And so in Revelation 7 and verse 14, we read this. John wrote of those who had died and were now in heaven, and they're in heaven. We'll get a snapshot of what they're saying. These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, Thalipsis. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Likewise, Paul warns those Christians at Lystra, through many tribulations, same word, thalipsis, we must enter the kingdom of God. So the word tribulation, the Net Bible renders it persecution, that's good, suffering, a little weaker, but it's all a part of the heartache that comes for following Jesus. I, John, your brother, fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance. Note those three words, I've underlined them there, and note the order. The experience of tribulation is part of the present. And sooner or later, if you love Jesus, you will experience tribulation. Why? Because indeed all, all, all 
who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So tribulation is in the present. It comes with walking with the Lord. The blessings of the kingdom, that's out there in the future. That's what we have to look forward to because this is not our best life now. The future blessing will come when Jesus comes back for his people. But in the interim, he is calling us to persevere, to live for him. And these three realities, perseverance, the coming kingdom, and tribulation, are all a part of the complete package that God has for his people. And when these people tell you otherwise, they are lying to you, and they are misrepresenting the word of God. Now, John says here in verse 9 that he was on the island called Patmos. Now, Patmos is a small, rocky, crescent-shaped kind of island in the Aegean Sea. It's on the southeast, uh, southwest coast off of Turkey. Here's a map. Uh, bring it up. You see that little dot out there called Patmos? Uh, it's actually technically a part of Greece. And of course, we've seen already in the Revelation that John refers to uh, this area where you see those seven marks. Those are the seven churches that he writes to. He calls it Asia. Not to be confused with the continent of Asia that we refer to today. In the first century, Asia was a province in the Roman Empire. And to distinguish it later on, they called it Asia Minor. But Patmos is this island off the coast of Asia. And it was a place where they typically sent political prisoners to do hard labor. It was an Alcatraz of sorts. It was a, a devil's island. And if you live there as a Christian, you were not only cut off from your family, but for the most part, you were cut off from the saints of God. Now this, according to Josephus, was a place for nonviolent prisoners. And they were required to work in the quarries on that island. You can imagine John in physical labor during that day. And then at night he would come back. And, and one of the things that strikes you, and God blessed me to allow me to go to the Isle of Patmos and the cave where John wrote the Revelation. But one of the things that absolutely captures you is wherever you are on the island, there's just the Aegean Sea is all around you. And I can't help but think that God used that experience in John's life because habitually he's going to refer to the sea all the way through the revelation. But notice, John is here on the island of Patmos because, here's the reason, don't miss it, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The Roman authorities evidently believed that John's preaching was somewhat seditious. Maybe they thought, well, he preaches this guy, Yeshua, who claims himself to be a king, and we have only one king, but... Caesar. And so they thought, well, here's this religious fanatic. We warned this old coot over and over and over again to be quiet, but he just wouldn't listen. So we'll fix the problem ourselves and we'll put him out there on that island called Patmos. We'll cook his goose there. And so they put him on Patmos. And so he calls himself your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. Listen, if you stand up for Jesus, if you speak for Jesus, not just witness with your life, he that witnesses only with his life witnesses only to himself. God has called you not only to witness with your life, but with your words. If you speak up for Jesus, if you refuse to call right wrong and wrong right, sooner or later there's going to be some people who will oppose you. And they're just going to call you some narrow-minded person who's crawled out from underneath a rock. Someone challenged me this week. Where do you get all this stuff about transgenderism not being a reality? Right out of the book of the Genesis. In the beginning, he created them male and female, period. There is no such thing 
as transgenderism in the mind of God Almighty. You can call it whatever you want. You can call gay marriage marriage, but it's not marriage. There's only one kind of marriage that God recognizes. It doesn't matter if the highest court in the land calls it marriage. You can call it whatever you want, but it's not a marriage. And you start speaking the truth, and they're going to call you some narrow-minded fun, fundamentalist. Fun, no fun, too much damn, and not enough mental. That's what they'll accuse you of. And that's what they did to the Apostle John. He stood up for Jesus. It was his testimony and his preaching of the Word of God. And here I am this morning. I'm on an island, Port Royal Island, and I'm ministering to the people of Community Bible Church. All right, here it is. He warns in his farewell discourse, in the world. You will, you will, you will have philipsis, tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. And so God gives his power to us as we make ourselves available. Now, maybe you're not on some barren island this morning, but banished from your friends. I go to some parts of the world where families have literally disowned their loved ones. And when I ministered on the campus at Duke University, and God privileged me to lead a number of young Jewish men and women to Christ, some of those were literally disowned by their family, and their family had a funeral for them. But let me just say, God will give you another family. This apostle refers to the saints he is writing. He calls himself your brother. Do you remember that occasion? When Peter said, Behold, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I can go almost anywhere in the world, and if I meet God's people, I have a house to stay. I have brothers and sisters. I have family, and so do you. And so here he is on the Isle of Patmos. Seems like a waste, but nothing is ever wasted in God's economy. It's a bleak, lonely, barren island, but it is at this place that God gives him the book that we are studying. And it's in many ways one of the most important books in all of the Bible because it helps us to see how God will end time as we know it. God gives John the Apostle a glimpse of the judgments that are going to come, but also a picture of glory that is in front of us. And it's very often in the midst of our heartache that God gives some of his best ministry. So on the human level, he's on Patmos. But notice here in verse 10, on a spiritual level, he's in the spirit. He's in the university of Christian suffering on the island physically, but he is in the spirit. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. It all happened on Sunday, the Lord's day. Now, some commentators assume that this is the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord begins with the great tribulation period, and it's not a single day. It's like, you know, we refer to the day of your youth. We don't say that you were a youth for one day, but that period of time, well, it's an expression in the Bible that has a bright side to it. You read one text and say, oh, that's a glorious day. Another day, oh, that's an awful day. It mimics a biblical day that starts and shadow gets dark and goes through the sunlight. And so a Jewish Sabbath begins on the evening and it ends the next day. And so the day of the Lord. 
I believe we're in the shadows of the day of the Lord, but when the church is taken out, it's going to get very, very dark. But then Jesus will come back, and it will be a bright, glorious day for a thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, it will get dark again. And then when that day, that time frame is over, we will go into the eternal state. So they assume he is writing about the day of the Lord, but he's not. The construction is different here. It's the Lord's day. It's the same construction when we speak of the Lord's table. It's an adjective, and it's Sunday, and it's not by accident that it was on this day that God gave him the revelation. The early church met on Sunday, not Saturday. Now look, I believe all Ten Commandments have full application, full significance today, though the application may change. Take the Fifth Commandment. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you might live long in the land, Moses wrote to the Jewish people. Paul takes the same command in the New Testament, quotes it in Ephesians 6, not that you may live long on the land, but you might live long on the earth. Because now God's people are not localized, for the most part, to a land called Israel, but they are across the planet wherever you go. Same commandment, broader application. There is still one day in seven that God's people are to honor. But now we honor the first day of the week in honor of the resurrected Christ. Ignatius, 15 years after John gives us the revelation, writes this. The Christians cease to keep the Jewish Sabbath and live by the Lord's day on which our life shines thanks to him. Pliny, the unbelieving Roman governor, wrote these words in 110 AD. The Christians gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, to sing praises to their Lord Jesus. Justin Martyr, a great church leader, 45 years later in 150 AD, wrote, We all hold this common gathering on Sunday, since it is the day when Jesus Christ our Savior rose from the dead. So when you hear all these conspiracists and these Seventh-day Adventists, I love them, but they're just wrong, and they come up with this stuff that the uh, Roman Catholic Church invented that we meet on Sunday. Or Constantine invented that we meet on the first day of the week. They know nothing of history and they know very little of their Bible. Not only do we have the picture of history hundreds of years before Constantine ever came, but we have the authority of the Word of God. We gather on Sunday and not Saturday. And it's not by accident that Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. It is not by accident that the first appearances he makes are on the first day of the week. It is not by accident that eight days later, bringing you back to the next Sunday, that he once again appears on the first day of the week. It is not by accident that 50 days later, and there should be a slide for this somewhere, come on, 50 days later, that um, the church is born on the day of Pentecost. It's born on a Sunday. In 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Paul said on your gathering on the first day of the week, that's when you bring your offering because that's when God's people worship. In Acts 20 and verse 7, they broke bread, they celebrated the Lord's table when on the first day of the week. So this is the Lord's day. Again, it's an adjective. You could render it the Lordian day. This is the first day of the week. This is Sunday when John is in the Spirit and God gives him this mighty, gigantic blessing. 
By the way, I hope that you are in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I hope you're Spirit-filled when you come here on a Sunday morning, that you're here to worship in spirit and in truth. And I know a lot of Christians just blow off Sunday. And some of you are watching me live stream in other countries, and I thank God for the technology. And I thank God for others on time zones that are planning to go to church later on, or maybe you've been. But some of our own people are at home in their Bacher lounger with their iced tea watching me, not because they're sick or unable to be here, not because they have sick kids, but because they chose to do it from the home. Listen, that's not God's way. That's not God's plan. You should be here on the Lord's Day gathering with God's people. Sunday has become a fun day in America. When I first came as your pastor, there were no soccer meets or gymnastic meets 25 years ago in Beaufort County, but within three or four years, they started doing it. You know, a Christian parent has a choice. When their child is in some baseball game Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, they should say to that child, we're not going because we're going to be with God's people. It takes a dad, it takes a man with some spiritual steel in his spine that helps his children to know what are important. And so he was in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, maybe he had a trance like Peter did up on that rooftop on Simon the Tanner's house there in Joppa where he saw the sky open up and this magnificent sheet come down and God gave him that wonderful vision. Perhaps he experienced what the Apostle Paul had where he was caught up, he said, in the third heaven. And he said it was so real. I don't know if I was literally physically there in heaven or if it was just a, a vision. That's how real it was. Or maybe he's doing, I hope, what you're doing. He was just worshiping in spirit and in truth as Jesus instructed us to. And it was in that context that God gave him the vision. However it happened, it happened on the Lord's Day when he was in the Spirit. And by the way, this verse and many like it are a good reminder of the balance between the physical and the spiritual realm. He's on the island of Patmos. That's where he is physically. But he's there in the Spirit. When Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae, or Colossae if you prefer. The Apostle Paul is writing to believers who live in the city of Colossae physically, while spiritually they are said to be in Christ. One speaks of their physical environment, the other word speaks of their spiritual environment. And it's important that we keep that balance of one not to the exclusion of the other. To be taken so much up with being in Christ, with our heavenly environment, you can ignore your earthly home and responsibilities. And so the saying is well taken. Some are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly good. And so they are so heavenly minded, they're here for the revelation, but they're a next door neighbor who's lost. They've never even given a thought to witness to that person, though they've lived there for 25 years. You are to have a balance between the physical and the spiritual. And if you're just so earthly minded and you don't keep your focus on the things above, you'll just become consumed with the material and the here and now and all your silly little hobbies to the exclusion of making an impact for Jesus Christ. Like the Apostle Paul who declared that he had become all things to all men that he might save some for the sake of the gospel, we too need to have that balance the balance of being in the world, yet not of the world. To listen again to today's study, part one of The Vision of Patmos, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program REV3. And when you do contact us, would you consider helping with a one-time or a recurring gift? Your support of Search the Scriptures allows us to introduce those who don't know Jesus Christ to Him and to grow believers in their walk with the Lord. For more information, call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow we continue our look at the vision of Patmos. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.